Welcome back to the CNS Summit podcast. We have another great episode featuring three exceptional leaders in health and life science. This was recorded on the main stage of the 2019 CNS Summit in Boca Raton, Florida. Dr. Amir Kalali, the chief curator of CNS Summit, hosted a conversation with Jessica Mega and Dr. Reed Tuxen. Jessica Mega is the chief medical and scientific officer at Verily, and Dr. Reed Tuxen is the managing director of Tuxen Health Connections. They discuss the intersection of life science, healthcare, and technology through research programs such as Project Baseline. For more episodes like this, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also find us on Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Be sure to visit the CNS Summit website at cnssummit.org to find out more about upcoming events, news, and announcements. And now, here's Dr. Kalali's conversation with Jessica Mega and Dr. Reed Tuxen. So, Jessica, I'm very excited to have you first thing in the morning. Thank you for coming to see us. I know how busy you are. You were an academic at Harvard, correct? That's right. And then somehow you jump, jumped into Google X, not just anywhere in Alphabet, but Google X, and then Verily. Can you tell us why you did that? So, I, uh, as Amir mentioned, I'm a cardiologist and was very happy in Boston. Sometimes people question how I could be so happy when it was snowing uh, as much as it was uh, in the 2014-2015 timeframe. But what was really interesting uh, from the view of being a cardiologist, I grew quite excited about evidence and what it really means to have the best evidence to translate that into patient care because most of my time clinically was spent in critical care cardiology. And even in a span of 20 years, the idea that we would treat people with intensive statins or the idea of dual antiplatelet therapy, um, even understanding when to take people to the cath lab, all of that was evolving. So I was fairly confident that I would have stayed at Harvard Medical School. But a trend that I think I've talked about and many people here are talking about is this idea that health data is moving from gigabytes to terabytes of information. And how are we going to harness that? And so when I did get a call really out of the blue from Google X to say, how would we take this health information and apply the best tools and technologies? Uh, at first, it sounded a little wacky because Google X at the time was doing things like the driverless car. Uh, so I, I, I don't have, uh, other than driving a car, I don't have any other experience with uh, the driverless car. Uh, but what I started to realize is that same infrastructure that you need to think about how to navigate cars on different roads, you can use that infrastructure, um, and why shouldn't we be applying it to life science and healthcare? So uh, I, did, I did move, packed up my bags and moved to California. Well, what was the difference in culture between Harvard and Google X? <laughs> I don't think it was different at all. No, uh, uh, the biggest, well, I'll start actually with some of the similarities. What I've found, um, you even feel this morning the intensity around people getting together and trying to solve big problems. I've always seen that in life science and healthcare and certainly saw that at the medical school. Mm-hmm. The, the difference may be uh, this idea of starting with bringing very, very diverse groups of people together. So uh, in my prior work, I didn't spend a lot of time with user uh, UX designers and uh, people thinking about uh, how would you put yourself in the shoes of a person, a patient, a doctor, a health system, and redesign it. So some of the bigger trends are bringing diverse fields together. Uh, Not to mention that I probably had about six or seven different deaths in the first uh, people are very fluid with where you are. Um, 
I found myself working in a pod and I, I noticed someone else was taking a nap in the pod next to me. So the, it definitely is a different work culture, but I think the, the, the similarity is the intensity. Was there anything that surprised you when you got there compared to your perception of what it was going to be like? Uh, you know what was actually really su surprising, and maybe this shouldn't be su surprising, but when you bring people together uh, around life science and healthcare, the mission is so important that it brings out a lot of humility. And so a lot of times I think you hear about hubris and uh, exuberance that's, that's irrational. But I have actually found that people are genuinely open because they realize it's going to be much, these problems are bigger than any one of us. And so I think that was a pleasant surprise. That was a little different to Harvard? Uh, yeah, I, I was, I always... I, I, would, I would assume so, actually. So that's interesting. Yeah. What, have you, what would you say were some of your... Uh, lessons you've learned since you've been there? Some of the things that have been really relevant, uh, I'll actually share it through the lens of some of the values that we've taken on as a company. And I, I should probably let people know. So when I joined, we were part of Google X and a really relatively small group. It was a handful of us trying to see, are there any capabilities that we think are differentiated? Because I feel so strongly that there's so many bright and interesting and smart people working in these problems that you only want to do something if you think you're gonna be additive. And what we realized is if you take the same information layer and this infrastructure that's able to deal with terabytes and petabytes of data but apply it to healthcare problems, there really is something there. And so over time we graduated and became a company called Verily under the Alphabet umbrella. So actually even going through that transition of being part of Google and then being part of Alphabet, going back to some surprises, people sometimes say, oh, do you think, you know, did you see yourself ever working at Google? And I told people, well, that wasn't even in existence when, uh, when I was uh, going to school. The other thing is Alphabet wasn't in existence. Um, but some of the lessons actually are things around our values that we've chosen to live by at the company. And one of them is this concept of starting with yes, which may seem pretty basic. But as a scientist, I think a lot of times we're, we're thinking about ways to... Uh, to really think about the, what's in front of us and be a little bit reductionist. But this idea of starting with yes doesn't mean you have to do everything, but it does mean that you have to have an openness to what you do. And I've found that that philosophy has helped me really think about problems in a new way. And, and there's an openness to anyone in the room or anyone in the company to come up with an idea. It's not just who you are, or your credentials, it's it's really about the idea. So that's very interesting. Tell me, what, what does that mean, start with yes? Just define that for me the way it's defined at Google. Uh, so I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, there, is, there are traditional ways that we measure. As a cardiologist, we, uh, we do a lot of traditional tests around electrocardiograms, and we use... Uh, and what I always tell people is we've been using technologies for years. You just need to make sure that it helps patients and it adds value. Someone came to me and he's thinking about a, a new way of capturing essentially the electrical signals of the heart. And immediately what will happen if you're not careful is you come up with all of these reasons why that wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, well, he's not thinking about this. It's not 12 leads. And We're not familiar with that concept at all, life sciences. <laughs> <laughs> but there's all these reasons immediately that your brain goes to to say why this may not be possible. But if you remember that ethic of pausing, and, and let's at least 
question whether this is possible. And then obviously you have to layer on all of the scientific rigor to make sure that everything you do is meaningful, it helps patients, it's safe and efficacious. But, but I do think it's a, it's a little bit of a mindset that, that you have to consciously channel. Well, you know, Jessica, one of the big ideas that you all are tackling at Verily is something that you call Project Baseline, this gigantic mapping of, the, of human health. Describe a little bit about that and, and, and some of the capabilities that a company like Verily can bring to a big, bold, audacious project like Baseline. So, so one of the things, and I'll answer it from a personal perspective, when, so uh, I was working in Boston at the time at a group called the Timmy Study Group, and mm-hmm. we were running and partnering with many people in the room around large-scale clinical trials, and we started to build in, uh, even now about 15 years ago, collecting genomics and proteomics and trying to do discovery work. But again, this idea of health data being probably gigabytes of data today, but if you think about not just the health that goes into a health record or even even a genome, but if you start to layer on all of the environmental factors, people are talking a lot about social determinants of health, all of a sudden you're starting to go to terabytes of information. And what we ended up doing in order to really tackle not just today's problems, and I'm happy to talk about some of the work we're doing that's very... uh, tactical around given areas like diabetes, for example, but this idea that next generation health is going to require a whole new ecosystem and a set of tools to be able to analyze all of this information. And so we did launch Project Baseline in conjunction with Stanford and with Duke University, uh, as well as the American Heart Association, to work directly with volunteers and participants on this incredibly deep dive into human health. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are now uh, several years into the project. I have been blown away. Uh, Really, interestingly, I've been most blown away by the volunteers in the program. I've been involved in research for so many years, and we normally had celebrations for the researchers and for the research coordinators. Um, everything we do here is very patient and person-centric, and so it's really the community people that has been what's, I think, most What, what do you think is going to come out of this? I mean, at the end of the day, what, what will we be excited about in terms of new insights that this project will you, that you anticipate uh, at, at its highest expression might deliver for us? So the things that I find most exciting is you can find places where, and even the work I used to do, we were very deep in a certain data type, but we were never able to see the entire link. So going from the genome to the proteome, to the metabolome, to the phenotype, to actually finding out how patients are experiencing their own health. Um, one of the most interesting subprojects we have going on right now is even reconciling the symptoms that someone has, what they think their health is like, and what actually sits in the medical records. We've also linked with claims data, and there is no ground truth right now for what what health is. So I think linking those areas in one place we've started, and uh, you'll see information about this coming out, is around cardiometabolic disease. So I, I believe that there's a, there's a new way to translate across all of these different data types. So what I, I also know that is that, that this project is taking advantage of, of, of a set of assets and skill sets, combining um, life science, uh, technology, and healthcare, and sort of bringing all three of those together. Uh, sort of talk a little bit about how that happens, and let's talk about it maybe through the prism of metabolic disease. Sure. So we started with a very deeply phenotype 
cohort. But what you learn when you start to do that is there's a set of tools, um, whether it's remotely consenting patients, whether it's building a virtual community, whether it's interdigitating digital biomarkers. So in the program, uh, people are wearing a study watch. We're testing bed sensors. Um, I'm happy to talk with anyone about how hard it is actually to integrate a lot of these digital signals. And we have a real openness. If it's a tool we need to make, we'll make it. If it's a third-party tool, we're more than happy to integrate it. But what we found along the way is that these are tools that can now be used in a broader community. So we're partnering with the American Heart Association on a Research Goes Red initiative that you've been very helpful as our advisory board chair to really make sure that we are taking these tools and extending it to, as I mentioned, advocacy groups, uh, interdigitating now with health systems that where a lot of research is done, and then partnering with industry broadly to think about this next generation of research. Because if we don't solve this discovery bottleneck, you really can't close that gap between research and care. And so I think it's been this extension and this broad ecosystem that will end up making the biggest difference. And if you take something like cardiometabolic disease, um, We're going to have some basic findings um, that will come out of this deep phenotyping, but I think we only start to have real impact if we, and I'll use the same thread with the American Heart Association, we actually surveyed all of the women who signed up, and we know women are traditionally underrepresented in these kinds of initiatives, and what was interesting is that cardiometabolic health and weight was the most important Thing to that community. So we're starting a community-based weight program, and now we're translating it to figuring out how do you actually provide better care. And so one of the things at Verily that we're doing is virtual care pathways. So I think that it's you can take that thread and yeah. see how that would so who, translate. Who would be the customer or the end user for what comes out of this? Is it the patient? Is it the uh, research community? Is it the clinical care community? Uh, who, at the end of the day, takes the results of this and, 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 and makes it manifest in, re in the real world? Yeah. So, um, broadly, I would say we are all the customer, but to get really tangible, in terms of the way I think about it is there's customers and constituents. And so, in and, and I actually think this is a really great thing about life science and healthcare. We're only judged by the clinical outcomes, which, which is amazing. It's not how popular a certain program is, and it's not... Um, uh, how engaged someone is with an app, it's really what, what we provide. Does it, does it help patients? Is it safe? And is it effective? And so the interesting thing, the customer can be anyone from a life science company, uh, someone who we work with device companies and now with digital tools, because if you can create a platform where you can start to test all of these interventions, then you can accelerate all of that work. Now, from a constituent perspective, yeah. The, the people who ultimately benefit are, are people. And you and I last night at dinner were talking a lot about this crisis right now in healthcare where healthcare costs are escalating, people are paying huge deductibles, and we owe it to people to figure out how to get discovery out there more quickly at a better price point. So ultimately, I think the constituents that benefit will be people. When I read the, uh, the, the reports about some of this kinds of work, people just get so excited by the, 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 the watch or the sensor or the technological consumer-oriented device. Uh, but this is well beyond being seduced by technology, isn't it? I, I think it starts with what's... Everything we do starts with what's the problem that you're trying to solve and how do you bring the right tools? Because 
If you don't start that way, you're essentially looking for a tool to try to fit it to solve a, a broken problem. And the way we've been thinking about clinical research broadly is with three pillars. Uh, one is getting more people involved and engaged in clinical research. There continues to be an underrepresentation in clinical research. Honestly, numbers in general and certainly certain demographics. The second pillar is better operations. There are so many things that we still do on paper that can be digitized. That should just be table stakes. And then the final one, and most importantly, is better evidence. And that may mean a different type of data input. Um, so, for example, we are working on a number of programs in neurology and if the score, if you're, you're working on a certain compound and everything is based on an annual exam with a physician, we're likely going to be losing the signals. So if you have devices that can give you more continuous readings, whether you're measuring a tremor or a seizure disorder, that's going to give you better evidence. So more patients, better operations, better evidence. So let's drill a little bit more on this notion of inclusiveness in clinical research and Everyone in this audience is well aware that we are all concerned about how few people in America in particular, but also around the world, are participants in clinical trials. We need more. But then people from underrepresented minorities are, are a real double challenge. Do you really see there being an opportunity, given the footprint that Google writ you know, large uh, has, given how many different people are interacting with those tools and products across the board, to, to translate some of that connectivityness into the specific work of something like a, a project baseline. So, so this is critically important, uh, both to us and to the ecosystem we've built. So we now have a number of key industry partnerships. And what we've seen, uh, it, and we have an experiment now looking at cardiovascular disease, and what would happen if you went to standard, or standard site recruitment versus reaching out to communities and people directly. And what we've seen is significantly more inclusion mm -hmm. when you get a message out broadly and people are the ones who are standing up and signing up for research versus everything going through the bottleneck of a handful of sites. And I still very much believe that uh, I, I still practice cardiology. I'm part of a health system. It's really going to be a hybrid between the systems that we have in place but there really is a role to now engage people more directly. And again, the data is showing us with these industry partnerships that we can do better from a recruitment standpoint. Let me, Amir opened up this notion of what it's like to come from the more traditional uh, clinical research world into a, a company like Google. And you're talking about these partnerships, um, the Stanford partnership, a Duke partnership. What has that really been like for you? And as people out here in the audience are thinking about ways that some that may want to eventually collaborate with what you're doing, what is the nature of that, of that collaboration? What's it like? What have you learned from it? So we started, uh, the first partnership was really with the patients themselves. And then from there, uh, thinking about health systems broadly, both in the United States and now internationally. Um, the partnership with Duke and Stanford has been uh, amazing. And it really is a partnership. I would say the other philosophy, you asked about some of the lessons. One was start with yes. I think another key philosophy that we have is partner when you can accelerate the work and get the solutions to people faster. And I can give really lots of different examples. It's very different than traditional technology where you can go in and it's entirely open space. 
here, if there are groups working on something and we can help accelerate together and move faster, we will partner. The most recent set of partnerships have been with a number of companies in the life science industry around the baseline platform, mm -hmm. working very closely with groups like Atsika, working with Pfizer, Sanofi, and Novartis, all companies who have been starting to think about how do you accelerate discovery. And what we've found is you really want to break down a traditional vendor provider model because you're not really going to tackle the big problems if you continue to have that kind of transactional engagement. And so what we do is set up programs, things like founders programs, where you get together, we think about what are the problems we're solving, and we say that we'll never be done. And it either, the team sometimes, uh, I don't know if I'm so popular at work with the teams when I say our work's never going to be done, um, but I really think it, we have to continue to push forward. We know what we can bring to the table today, but you have to work directly with people on the ground to figure out what are companies, what are the biggest things that people are grappling with, and uh, I'm, I'm very transparent with people, and I'll let them know, yes, we have something that we can help with today, or, you know, that, that's, that's probably not the best place for us to start. Well, Amir's going to get the last question. Let me sneak one short one in. It's not a short one, but you'll see what you do with it. One of the biggest challenges I'm sure you are facing is when people provide their data to a company like uh, Google uh, or any of the social media companies, what happens to it? Um, how do people begin to understand they can have confidence that their data will be well cared for? How are you at Verily and the leadership role you have thinking about this issue of data, privacy, and confidentiality? So one of the real advantages of, of graduating, so as I mentioned, we were in Google X and now we are Verily operating as a life science and healthcare company. And from the very beginning, we've had to build out our own quality systems, privacy systems, security systems. What's been really advantageous is to build on security and privacy that people have been thinking about for years. But when we're in this particular space, when we work with people, we consent people for the, the particular engagement that they're about to it, it be involved in. And we don't co-mingle all of the information. It's very clear about what per, a person is contributing to. So for example, with the industry partnerships that I mentioned, and we're thinking about the baseline platform, one of the things we're doing now is doing remote trials. And so when we go and work with people in their home using the, the tools from the platform, uh, people know what they're signing up for. The other thing is it's very important to give someone value back. So one program that we started, this came from the baseline health study, but we're extending it through now to our broader, to our broader research is what does it mean to be an individual in a program and what value do you get back? And so we've worked on ways to give lab values back. We partnered with Color Genomics to give genetic results back to individuals. Um, because again, I think this idea that research happens behind closed walls, uh, certainly there's data that's proprietary. Every company has access to their own proprietary data. But when it comes to the elements that you can give back to patients, that's a, that's a key principle. So I'm going to change my last question, actually. Um, so. Reed brought up a fantastic question that everyone will, I'm sure, ask you all the time. So Alphabet does have access to more data than pretty much any company in the world as a group of companies. So just to be clear, are you saying that I can imagine linking data from what you might have a Verily to the many sources within the Alphabet family that is tracking me whenever I, you know, on maps, wherever. 
Are you saying those are, you can see many potentials by actually, you know, using that data together. Are you saying that is kind of kept separately, that you're not co-locating all the information that Alphabet might have on an individual and linking them together? And are you saying that they're basically separated? It's really, the, the unit is really the person. So an individual can choose yes. ultimately what data they want to contribute to. Yes. But that is, that, is, that is really important. So in the baseline health study, we're looking at things like the genome, the proteome, the metabolome. Uh, but people opt into, for example, do they want to help study geolocation? There's a lot of talk about would geolocation help us? Um, for example, could we use it to uh, help identify in clinical trials if someone's having an adverse event or a serious adverse event and they're near the hospital? Um, people opt into that if that's something of interest to them. So um, the very last question is, um, you know, we're having our 10th anniversary, where later on this morning we're going to have some friends tell us what they think is going to happen. When you look forward to clinical development in particular, which, you know, Verily is helping with, how do you think we might be different in 10 years to what we're doing now in clinical development? The thing that I, I, I see that's shifting the most is really defining what are clinical outcomes that matter. So I grew up in a world where the clinical outcomes were, uh, again, coming from cardiology, cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke. And these were hard clinical outcomes. There's an advantage to that, but you're missing a lot of intermediates and surrogates and signals that we just have never been able to capture. I can even think about some of the dose-ranging trials that we used to run were, were pretty crude. And so going forward from a development standpoint, the more we can harness, whether it's digital signals, molecular signals, early readouts, I think we can move much more quickly. But in order to do that, it goes back to the pillars of having more patients engaged, better operations, and better evidence. Um, but I'm, I'm very optimistic that we're at an inflection point where we're going to be able to do this. Thank you, Jessica. That was wonderful. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks. Outstanding. Really Thank well you. done. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this CNS Summit podcast. To get more episodes on your device automatically, be sure to subscribe to the CNS Summit podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also get this on Health Podcast Network, which you can find at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Be sure to visit the CNS Summit website at cnssummit.org to find out more about upcoming events, news, and announcements.